Jesus prayed to his father and said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. Gather around, Christians. Gather around, Christians, even virtually this morning for a marvelous and wonderful thing. Hear your Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as he prays for you. As he goes to his Father and lifts you and I up to him in prayer. And let's us listen in to what he has to say on our behalf, to the one who sent him into the world to redeem the world. Now, when I was a kid, I thought like a kid, I reasoned like a kid, and therefore I was disturbed by the picture of Jesus praying. After all, if Jesus is God, does that mean that he's talking to himself? Now, of course, I'm a man, I've grown up, and I've come to reflect and wonder in the miracle of God's triune nature, that Jesus is speaking to his Father and pleading our case to him. Do you want to know whether or not prayer is serious business, whether it is something that we should be devoting even more time to than we do? Consider how many times Jesus himself engaged in serious prayer. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, he was praying, and it was during his prayer that the heavens were opened. In Luke 9, 18, now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And it was then that he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Just a few verses later, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Matthew 19, the children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. them. And in Matthew chapter 26, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus went with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. It is clear from the Gospels, and it's clear from Jesus's behavior, that prayer is fundamental to being a person, whether human or divine. And so the very last thing that Jesus does while he's with his disciples before he is about to be betrayed is to pray. I am no longer in the world, he prays, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus' prayer is for you and for me even in these times right now. And his prayer is for our unity with him and with the Father himself. That as the Son and the Father are one, so too might we be one with him and also one with each other. The question then is, do we pray? Do we pray as our Lord, the Son of God in the flesh, went to his Father in prayer? After Jesus's ascension, and as we heard on Thursday, a little bit of scolding from some of the angels, 
the disciples got together, the disciples who are now the apostles, along with all of those who had come to put their faith in Jesus. And Acts chapter 1 verse 14 records that all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And just a little bit later, as they came to the realization that, as we talked about in Bible study just a few minutes ago, their number had been reduced from that beautiful number 12 to 11, which is not nearly as nice, and they needed to get back up to full strength, what did they decide to do? They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. After Pentecost and the great mass baptism of the first few thousand converts to this new and young faith that Jesus was in fact the Messiah promised to the Jews from of old, what did those Christians do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. When Paul and Silas found themselves in prison, even at midnight while they were in prison, what did they do? In Acts chapter 16, it records that they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, praying out loud, not just sort of as we Lutherans sometimes do, you know, amen, but praying in such a way that everybody in the prison cells, just like the disciples were overhearing Jesus, were overhearing Paul and Silas as they lifted up probably even their fellow prisoners to God in prayer. And the very first important Gentile convert to the Christian faith, Cornelius, a commander in the Roman forces, was known as a God-fearer to those around him because, according to Acts 10, he feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Are we known as Corneliuses to those around us? Do people look at us and say, clearly they are God-fearers because they give alms and they pray continually to God? Or is prayer something that we leave to the professionals? We leave to somebody else to do. How many times has somebody come to us, maybe not as frequently in Montreal as it happens in other places, but come up to us and said, you know, would you, would you pray for me? We said, yeah, I'm I'll remember to pray for you. Instead of saying, well, let's pray right now. Why? Why do we pray? Why is this so foundational to Jesus' own ministry and life? Why was it foundational to the ministry of the early church? And why is it something that ought to be foundational for us as well? Way back in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we heard a few weeks back, Peter reminds these newly baptized that he is writing to, that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As pastor at Ascension, I am at best prime minister, if you will, among the ministers of God, which is all of you. We together are the cabinet. 
We are the ones responsible to the king for the governance of the realm. And while I might be prime minister, you are all right honorables in your own stead and right, because by your baptism, you were all made priests to God. And what do priests do? Anybody, non-religious people even know what a priest does. A priest stands in between the people and God. They are the intercessor. They are the one that the other people, the hoi polloi, the normal people can go to and say, I don't know how to go to God. Can you go to God for me? And that is what we do. Prayer is our spiritual sacrifice that we as the priests of God offer when we come together in person or virtually. And in just a few minutes, we will engage in that priestly duty as we lift up our governments, our neighbors, our friends, our frontline healthcare workers, our armed forces, and all of those in need to God together, saying, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Not hear Pastor Sianja's prayer. Hear our prayer. So what are we doing when we pray? Well, listening into Jesus' prayer gives us the answer. Listen to what Jesus asks for from the Father. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. There are two important things that Jesus prays for. That the word given to us might dwell richly in us, because it comes from the Father through Jesus. And secondly, that we might be one, in the same way that the Son and the Father are eternally one. Our unity as the people of God, as priests of God in our baptism into Christ, our unity over and against evil and against the evil one is what makes us salt and light and yeast in the world. And so we ought to be praying for unity in the name of Christ because that is what helps us preserve a fallen creation as God's people. And what is the name? that we have been given? What is the name in which we should be asked to be united? It's not G-O-D. It's not God as in O-M-G. It is much more explicit. The Father who sent forth the Son and who dwells in us by the Spirit has unpacked who it is that we mean when we say the name. It is the Father who has given us his prized possession, Christ, the world's Redeemer, the lover of the pure, the fount of heavenly wisdom, our trust and hope secure for Christ the cross ascended to save a world undone and suffering for the sinful, our full redemption won. That son sent forth by the Father, who now sends the Spirit into our hearts to comfort us and exhort us and encourage us and bind us together as one people. That is the name. Not just 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sent casually without meaning, but everything that name of God implies for us. It is the name we cling to for our redemption and salvation and for our life and for every hope that we can have in this world. It is the name that was most fully unpacked for us on the cross. That the Father would give up his Son even unto death, and that the Son, as his very last act from the cross, would give up his Spirit for you and I. So why should we be praying for that name to be richly dwelling among us, for that name to be shown forth from us into the world, especially now? Well, 1 Peter 5, our reading for this morning, really gives us some clarity on that. Humble yourselves, Peter says, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If we are not in that name, if we are not praying that that name dwell richly among us, we will be overwhelmed by anxiety. And when anxiety creeps up on all of us, you can be sure it's because we are not going to God in prayer and casting ourselves on the name of God. How else would we know that God cares for us? The word God itself doesn't imply much of anything. It could be some giant, as some Germans used to talk about 10 years ago, some giant spaghetti monster in the sky who may or may not exist. When we say the name, we say specifically that we believe in this Jesus who died for us on the cross. That is a God who is willing to sacrifice that fallen enemies might be saved. Why would we not cast our anxieties on him? Why would we not trust him to defeat the devil at each and every turn? To pray is to exercise our faith and trust in this name, the Father who sent forth his Christ and from whom flows the Spirit. Praying is crying out to God and trusting that that God, this Father who sent Jesus, who lives in us by the Spirit, will save us from each and every calamity. Luther, as he so often does, puts it best. When he talks about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, but really gets to this heart of going to God in prayer and casting our anxieties on him instead of letting them weigh us down and make us unfruitful members of the kingdom of God. Luther said, many a one thinks that he has God and everything in abundance when he has money and possessions. He trusts in them boasts of them with such firmness and assurance as to care for no one. Such a man has a God, mammon by name, money and possessions on which he has set all his heart and which is also the most common idol on earth. This is 500 years ago. Nothing has changed. Luther goes on to say, he who has money and possessions feels secure and is joyful and undismayed as though he were sitting in the midst of paradise. On the other hand, he who has none doubts and is despondent as though he knew of no God. For very few are to be found who are of good cheer and who neither mourn nor complain if they have not mammon. This care and desire for money sticks and clings to our nature even to the grave. So too, whoever trusts and boasts that he possesses great skill, prudence, power, favor, friendship, and honor has also a God, 
but not the true and only God. This appears again when you notice how presumptuous, secure, and proud people are because of such possessions and how despondent they are when they no longer exist or are withdrawn. Therefore, Luther repeats that the chief explanation of this point is that to have a God is to have something in which the heart entirely trusts. And so if a virus comes and takes away your financial independence, your friendships, your skill and power, even your health, where then is your God? It's no wonder that our societies are awash in anxiety and worry as they watch all of their gods stripped away from them one by one and are scrambling to do whatever they possibly can to rebuild their idols, to reopen the temples to these gods. Where we are encouraged by our Lord in his last prayer to his father to cling to the name, to be out of the world, and as Peter says, cast your anxieties on the one true God because he actually does care for you. Our Lord, God's Son, the Prince of Peace, the Redeemer of the world, prayed. His disciples gathered in prayer, and it's our high vocation to gather even by Zoom to do the same. And it is in true prayer it is in going to God in prayer that we find our anxiety and fear vanish because we hand them over to the one who cares more for us than even we do for ourselves. And it's in that prayer that we find our trust renewed in God. As the old Latin hymn urged us, and as we sang just a few weeks ago, go to dark Gethsemane, you who feel the tempter's power, your redeemer's conflict see, Watch with him one bitter hour. Turn not from his griefs away. Learn from Jesus Christ to pray. So may the grace, mercy, and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ guard and keep you always in the one true faith unto life everlasting.